The title of this morning's sermon is Why We Might Be Weary and What We Can Do About It, Part 1. And then next week will be Part 2. So here's the main idea. We're going to trust, we're going to contrast man's words in verse 12 with God's word in verses 9 through 11. But what I want to do is I want to look at what Solomon says about man's word, uh, man's words first in verse 12, and then move into the discussion of God's word in verses 11 through 9 through 11, which means we're going to have to look at the verses out of order. So first look at me at verse 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 12. Solomon says, my son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So Solomon's making a point about the amount of information that was available and how overwhelming, or he said wearying, it could be. In Solomon's day, the information that was available was primarily limited to books. In our day, this information can take many other forms. And so it's interesting to consider is that if Solomon could say this in his day when there was no printing press or there was no internet or there was no television or there was no radio or there was only a fraction of the books that we have, then what would he say if he lived in our day. So here's the truth. There's really no time in history that these words have been more applicable, and this brings us to lesson one. Man's words can be part one overwhelming. Man's words can be part one overwhelming. I want to try to give you an idea of just how overwhelming. When someone sends an email or someone responds to an email, or someone writes a blog, or someone comments on a blog, or someone posts on Facebook, or someone responds to a post on Facebook, or someone tweets, or retweets, or responds to a tweet, or uploads a video, or comments on a video. This creates data. And the amount of data that we create, it's truly astonishing. By 2025, it's estimated that 463 exabytes of data will be created each day. Now, most of us, myself included, probably don't know what one exabyte is, say nothing about 463 exabytes. So let me try to give you an idea here. A kilobyte is 1,000 bytes, or a kilobyte is the number one with three zeros after it. An exabyte is one quintillion kilobytes, or the number one with 18 zeros after it. And that's the amount of data or information that we create each day. And to give that some perspective, because that probably didn't make it much <laughs> clearer for you how much information we create per day, it's the equivalent of 212,765,957 DVDs of data that's being created each day by us. And so many of us are practically creating our own DVDs each day, you might say. This past week, I read an article on Forbes, and the title was, How Much Data Do We Create Every Day the mind-blowing stats everyone should read. I'm just going to read one little quote from this article to you. The author said, the pace that we create data is only accelerating with the growth of the internet. Over the last three years, or from actually when it was written, it would have been 2016 to 2018, between 2016 and 2018 alone, 90% of the data in the world was created, and then he said, this is worth rereading. So let me reread this to you. That between 2016 to 2018, 90% of the data in the world was generated. And so if Solomon lived in our day, what might he say? If he was to rewrite 
verse 12, he would say, of making many blogs and podcasts and online summits and emails and Facebook posts and Twitter feeds and interviews and news stations and Instagrams and Snapchats and LinkedIn feeds and YouTube channels, there is no end and much watching and listening and studying and reading is weariness of the flesh. Because as helpful as some of this information can be, there's no end to it. And so we could spend thousands of lifetimes and never feel like we have read or listened to or watched or studied everyone and everything that we think we should read and listen to and watch and study. Now, to be perfectly clear about this, the point is not that people shouldn't have blogs or podcasts or books or watch the news or post on social media. I'm sure all of us recognize the ways that we have benefited from books and podcasts that we've read. The simple point is that the amount of information available can be overwhelming, and as Solomon said, it can also be wearying. And there's another important point. It wasn't that long ago if someone wanted to speak on a certain topic, or we could even say um, be an expert on a topic, they had to have an amount of credibility. That was the only way that they could be invited on a radio station for an interview, or that's the only way that they could be brought on to a television show to share their opinion, or that was the only way that they could sign a book deal with a publisher. But now, with a matter of a few minutes, what can people do? They can set up a blog, they can start a podcast, they can have a YouTube channel, and they can act like they're an expert on anything, even if they have very little knowledge and no expertise. I want to make a point. It's going to take me a little bit of time to explain the situation, so I want you to bear with me. You're probably going to wonder at first why I'm talking about this, but I hope it will become clear how important this is to consider. So SEO, it's an acronym that stands for Search Engine Optimization, and it's the science behind getting your blog, or your podcast, you know, your website, your product, your image, your video, your song, whatever it is, to rank on search engines, to get to, and when I say search engines, basically, I mean Google, because Google makes up 90% of the search, search results. And people want to be on the front page of Google, because the saying is, if you're on the second page of Google, you might as well be on the 20th page of Google. And so SEO, or search engine optimization, is a science behind getting whatever it is you want to rank or be on the front page of Google. Google uses algorithms, and they keep these algorithms secret to determine search rankings. And then they change these algorithms, you know, a few times per year to prevent people from gaming the system. And here's just one example of the way that people could do this. Keywords used to be a major ranking factor. So if people wanted their post or site to be on the front page of Google, they would put some number of keywords throughout their um, post because keywords are this ranking factor. Google would crawl websites, find the most prominent words, and then those words or those keywords would increase a page or a site's ranking for that keyword. And then Google figured, because if that word was prominent enough or occurred frequently enough in people's post or blog, then they would be uh, familiar with that topic. 
<clears throat> and when people learned that this is what Google was looking for when crawling pages, people would you know, put all these keywords in their post. It was called keyword stuffing. And then when Google learned that people were doing that, they changed their algorithms, and they actually started penalizing people for keyword stuffing. And so when there was an update and the algorithms changed, then all the people that have been keyword stuffing who are on the front page of Google then are you know, bumped down to find themselves on the 20th page of Google. In Google's early years, it used to focus almost entirely on relevance. So basically, Google was trying to return search results that were the most relevant to the user. But then they decided that they were going to start focusing on something else. So they were going to make something else an additional ranking factor, and that's authority, or that's credibility. Basically, Google wanted to make sure that if you wrote about sports, then you had some involvement in sports. Or if you were to sell music products, then Google wanted to make sure that you actually knew something about quality music. Or if you were going to teach people how to do something, many people have how-to blogs, that you had some amount of experience in that area to be teaching others about it. So basically, Google wanted to start making sure that people who discussed a topic had some idea of what? What they were talking about, or some experience, or some expertise in that area. And it's almost like Google recognized how many people were talking about things when what? When they really had no idea what they were talking about, or they had no, no business talking about those things. I want to tell you about one specific core update to Google's algorithms to try to return better, more reliable results to people when they recognized this problem. In August 2018, Google released one of their largest and their most significant changes to their algorithms. And as is the case every time Google updates their algorithms, there's this huge shakeup among websites where some number of websites are bumped up higher and some number of websites are, are bumped lower. But for this update, what made it um, somewhat notorious was there was one particular area that was hit very, very hard. So listen to this. Almost 50% of all the sites that saw a loss of traffic were medical sites. I'm using the term medical loosely because that's kind of the point. They weren't legitimate medical sites. So the update itself, it actually came to be known as the medical or the medic update. That wasn't Google's name for the update. That was the name that the update ended up receiving because of how hard it ended up hitting so many different medical sites. Now, here's the question. Why would all of these, quote, medical sites be hit so hard by an update that's simply focusing on authority and credibility? And the simple answer is because as soon as Google started looking for authority or credibility associated with what people were talking about, it was obvious that these sites didn't have any. There were all these people talking about health and medicine when they had no idea what they were talking about. There's no shortage of people who think that they're experts on health, on sickness, on disease, on well-being, on medicine. I mean, if you've got a runny nose or any sort of sickness, there is no shortage of people who can tell you, you know, what you should be doing or, or what you shouldn't be doing. Personally, well, not even really personally, I'll say this. You, you should think it's fantastic that Google did this. You should think it's fantastic that they started looking for credibility or authority behind all of the websites because consider how 
important it is when you're searching for, um, let's say, advice on buying a car. You could say, well, that's important. But how much more important is it when you're searching Google for advice on your sick child? You hope that the results that are being returned are from experts or have an amount of credibility. When I was growing up, they discovered HIV. And I can remember I was pretty young, but it seemed like everyone was terrified about how it was being transmitted, you know, and who was going to get it and how you could get it for others. And the first recorded case was in 1981. I remember I was in school and there was, you know, these different reports about it and people were talking about it because everyone, all the other kids at school were terrified, you know, can I play with other kids on the, on the playground or am I going to end up getting this? And so that was 1981, which means that for about, you know, almost four decades now, they have been researching HIV, made considerable considerable improvements to the treatment of it, but those, that still continues because as more research is done, more improvements are made. Now, let me consider the perspective here. Conservative estimates say that the coronavirus originated in humans at the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020, which means doctors or scientists have been studying it for how long? A few months. And so here's my point. When people claim to be experts on something that's only been around for a few months, that's almost a guarantee that what? That they're not experts. This reveals one of the other consequences of people so easily sharing their thoughts and opinions. It provides an amount of information that isn't just overwhelming, but is also untrustworthy. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. Man's words can be part two untrustworthy. Man's words can be part two untrustworthy. It almost seems like the wisest people, I mean, there's some hills to die on. There's some essentials we don't budge, we're not going to move. I mean, if we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the inerrancy of scripture, we're talking about the deity of Christ. But you move away from those essentials and you tend to notice that the wisest people or the knowledgeable, the most knowledgeable people say things with an amount of looseness or open-handedness because it's almost as though they know enough to know how much they don't know, if that makes sense. The only people who really think they know everything are people who just don't know enough yet to know how little they know. <laughs> Sorry if that's confusing. But do you get what I'm saying? Because generally people who become experts in certain fields or areas of life will be the first ones to say, we're still learning. We don't know everything. The only people who do think they know everything are the people who just don't know enough to know how little they actually know. Do me a favor and look again at verse 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 12. Solomon says, my son... Beware of anything beyond these. Just notice that. Beware of anything beyond these. And when Solomon says these, we need to look at the previous verse and see what that pronoun's referring to. These is referring to the words of the wise in verse 11, which in context is God's word or the inspired words of Scripture. So it's as though Solomon is saying, beware of anything beyond God's word. Now, what is anything beyond God's word? Man's word or man's words. 
And so the question is, why would Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give us this warning to beware of anything beyond God's word? Because man's words can be completely untrustworthy. Think about this. If Solomon gave this warning in his day, how much more applicable would it be in our day when anyone can be an expert? And again, I'm using the word expert loosely. Consider this. Two of the most important factors for determining the value of information are first, obviously, accuracy. If it's something's inaccurate, how valuable is that information? And then secondly, is the unchanging nature of that information. How valuable is information if it changes or is untrustworthy next week, you know, next month or next year? And the reason I mention this is much of the information that we receive from man is untrustworthy because it's inaccurate and because it changes. And I'll just give you a few examples, but there are you know, hundreds or thousands or millions of examples I could give you. I'll give you three examples related to the current situation. The first example is masks. Should we wear masks? The answer is basically that it depends on the day. If it's before April 3rd, then the CDC, the Center for the Disease Control, was saying not to wear masks. But then on April 3rd, President Trump announced that the CDC recommended wearing masks. And I guarantee if you go to Facebook, you will probably see just as many posts saying wear masks as don't wear masks. And do you see how weird this is? You know, one day we don't need to wear masks, and then the next day masks might save your life. The second example is the economy. If you've been tuning into President Trump's briefings, then you know that he's been bordering on guaranteeing a phenomenal recovery for the economy. Now, maybe he doesn't have (laughs) <laughs> great credibility with you because he wants to be reelected. So I'll give you the uh, opinions of a few other people. I read an article on NASDAQ.com and it was titled, The Dow Will Bounce Back, History Tells Us When. And the article stated, many events have knocked the Dow down and more often than not, it bounces back quickly. Mark Cuban, he's known as the, he's most well known simply because he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, but he's also an American billionaire, entrepreneur, and investor. And he said, quote, that he had absolute confidence that the nation will return to its pre-coronavirus boom. So these quotes, and there's plenty of others I could give you, sound very optimistic regarding the economy recovering. Listen to this. Paul Singer, he's a multi-billionaire hedge fund manager and investor. In other words, he deals with the stock market, and considering he's a multi-billionaire, you know, billionaire, He apparently does pretty well in this. And in a Forbes article, he said, America could be facing the deepest recession since the Great Depression. Not the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, but since the Great Depression. So he sounds very pessimistic about the American economy. I could give you other articles that also sound very pessimistic. So here's the good news and here's the bad news. The good news is this. If you want to find information that tells you the economy is going to recover, you can. And here's the bad news. If you want to find information the economy is not going to recover, then what? You can. And because of the amount of untrustworthy information available, this is pretty much the case 
with every single topic that you can imagine. If you want to learn about a certain topic, there seems to be an equal number of qualified, educated, intelligent people, and they are claiming very boldly that they are the educated, intelligent, informed ones, and those people disagreeing with them are the ones who are wrong. The problem is the people that they're disagreeing with are also claiming to be as intelligent and educated as informed. And so the more you read, the more confused you become because instead of learning more about the topic, you simply learn that everyone disagrees. And what does this produce? It produces the weariness that Solomon discussed in verse 12. The third example, so we talked about mass, talked about the economy, I want to talk to you about toilet paper. You did hear me correctly. <laughs> Why have we been convinced that stores are running out of toilet paper, or now they seem to partially be, or it seems restocking, but for a period of time, why were we convinced the stores were out of toilet paper? Because people are greedy and selfish, and they're hoarding it. This past week, I read an article that argued that it's because so many people are at home, which means they're not going to the bathroom more, but they're going to the bathroom more at home, which means they're using more toilet paper at home. And so here's, and where are they not using toilet paper then? out in businesses and so forth. So here's the issue. The toilet paper world is divided into two separate markets. There's the commercial market, which is the toilet paper for public restrooms, such as those in workplaces, schools, restaurants, hotels, airports. And because of the quarantine, all that toilet paper is not being used. The consumer market, which is the toilet paper for people's homes, is the other market, and this is what's missing from store shelves because so much of it's being used. And then you say, well... Why can't they take all of the unused toilet paper from the commercial market and then send it to the consumer market? Well, the problem is there are different markets. The commercial toilet paper used in public restrooms, it's on huge rolls. It's too big to fit on most people's home dispensers. The paper itself, it's thinner. It's more practical. It comes individually wrapped. It's on these huge pallets. Now, the consumer toilet paper for your homes, it's in this brightly branded packaged material, you know, of six or 12 rolls so that you can feel like the toilet paper you're buying is pretty and attractive, right? Now, I hope you kind of, I hope you get the idea. I'm not trying to educate you about toilet paper. I don't really care much one way or the other about toilet paper. My point is this, we can't even figure that out. We can't even figure out why we're running out of toilet paper. Is it because we're selfish, greedy consumers who are hoarding it, or is it because we have this supply chain and distribution issue? And so you say, okay, well, well we, just, we just need to wait till the dust settles. Because when the dust settles, like years from now, everyone's going to be able to look back, and then they're going to be able to say who was right and wrong about everything. Well, one of the things that history proves is that that doesn't happen with history. Let me say that one more time. One thing that history proves is that that does not happen with history. People spend decades looking back at the same information and what? Coming to completely different conclusions. Here's what's probably going to happen just using the quarantine as it's debated for decades to come. On CNN's State of the Union, Dr. Fauci, he's the gentleman who's become the face of America's response to the coronavirus, Early on, he predicted that up to 200,000 Americans were going to die if drastic steps were not taken. And since then, his prediction has dropped considerably. 
down, down to the low 10,000s. When people look back on this in the future, if they were in favor of the quarantine, then they're going to say that those numbers dropped considerably because of the quarantine. If people are opposed to the quarantine, then they're going to say that the quarantine was unnecessary because the virus simply wasn't very lethal and there were only these thousands of people who died versus the earlier estimates that made the virus sound like it was this horrible thing when it wasn't really that horrible. So people are going to be able to take the same information and they are going to be able to spin it to fit their agendas or their opinions or their views. And that's why it can be so difficult. This is why I basically try to stay out of conversations or arguments, especially on social media, because I have no doubt, the number of times, even recently, I'll just tell you one story, recently, to move away from the coronavirus, there's this gentleman, I have no idea who he is, he he wrote me through LinkedIn, and he wanted, I'm suspecting he must be a Jehovah's Witnesses, because early on he didn't really reveal, he didn't really show his hand to me, but I was suspecting there's some agenda he had as he's kind of pressing me. And so I was, I guess you'd say, trying to be courteous, responding to some of his message, and basically he wanted to argue with me that Jesus isn't God, that Jesus is a created being. And it became evident, and he's very courteous at first, and then as I disagree with him, you know, kind of his true colors come out, and he seems to become frustrated that I'm not agreeing that Jesus is this created being. But here's the point. It really didn't matter what I said to him. It didn't matter what verses I shared with him because he had verses from his, I think it's called the New World Translation, or he had articles, probably from the Watchtower, that he could just throw right back at me and make the exact same claims, or actually completely not the exact same claims, or he could make the exact same claims that I was wrong, is my point. And so we've got to be holding to the Bible. We've got to be looking at what the Bible says. That's my authority, but that was not his authority. And since the Bible, I mean, he would say the Bible says authority, but it's a different Bible. Since the Watchtower and the New World Translation was his authority, we could not have a conversation because the authority that I was using had absolutely no credibility with him. And the authority that he was using, Watchtower and New World Translation, has absolutely no credibility with me. Look back at verse 12. with me. The second half of the verse says, of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let me be clear that this is not as literal as it sounds, in the sense that God isn't discouraging us from reading any books but the Bible, or he's not discouraging us from reading Christian books. There are plenty of wonderful Christian books that can help us grow. And so, if that's not what Solomon, or what God is saying through Solomon, then what exactly? I mean, there is a point that's being made by this verse. So what is it? Solomon is saying that we need to make sure that we don't let any earthly books rob us of the Bible's wisdom. We don't want to be spending so much time reading other books, even wonderful Christian books, that we do what? Neglect God's Word. I'll use an illustration from when I used to be into weightlifting There's a saying that muscles are not made in the gym, they're made in the kitchen. That sounds weird, right? Muscles are not made in the gym, they're made in the kitchen. And the idea is you break down your muscles when you work out, and then you feed them in the kitchen to make them grow. And there's a lot of truth in this, because generally the difference between successful and unsuccessful weightlifters is not their intensity in the gym, or is not the effort that they put forth. There are plenty of very unsuccessful weightlifters who work very hard in the gym. The difference is typically what happens in the kitchen or what happens nutritionally or how well they eat. And so as a weightlifter, as soon as you learn 
that what you eat is super important and is basically the difference, literally, between being a successful or unsuccessful weightlifter, you become consumed, no pun intended, with what you consume. And you're going to go out and you're going to spend hundreds or probably even thousands of dollars on all of these supplements. And it doesn't help that the magazines that you look at are filled with these huge bodybuilders who are advertising these supplements, and then you think that if you were to take these supplements that you're going to look like them. Many bodybuilders... Some of them, I mean, they'll even be, you'll even have to pay, to their, pay a subscription to their website to see their journals, put, put their nutrition journals online so that you can see what they eat. And you'd be surprised to see that many of them are not taking very many supplements. And the reason is that they need every edge they can get, and they know that whole food is better than supplements. Then you go to the gym. And you're seeing some gentleman, you know, and you basically, you want to look like he looks. And so you start talking to this guy. And you say, well, you know, what are you doing? And then you find out you're not working out much differently. And then he tells you, well, it's really, the major issue is how you eat, what your diet looks like. And so you say, well, tell me, what supplements are you taking? And most of these guys will say, well, I'm not really taking a lot of supplements. I'm consuming a lot of whole food. And so then typically after working out for a few years, I'd be surprised sometimes if they ever do a study on who's purchasing most of the supplements that are being purchased. It's probably very inexperienced um, bodybuilders, or if they're even bodybuilders, or weightlifters, because after you've been lifting weights for a few years, you stop spending so much money on supplements, and you recognize how much better, more important whole food is. Thanks for bearing with me through that little analogy, because I want to make a point. I just feel like Christians follow that exact same journey. I feel like Christians go through this exact same scenario we get saved, and then we spend all this time reading all these Christian books. And I mean, I like it. Katie said we were talking, you know, we go over the sermon, go over it Thursday night, still following the same routine Thursday nights and then Saturday, and usually takes mo- much of Saturday because we're trying to deal with our kids too. And, it, and plus, I guess I shouldn't blame my kids. Much of it just has to do with Katie and I getting sidetracked on all of the other conversations, you know, that we have. And this past week, one of the conversations was Katie says, it's kind of interesting to listen to you share this because you— uh, write Christian books. And I said, yeah, I'm, I don't want to sound ultra critical of Christian books. I want to sound ultra positive regarding God's word. The Bible is the whole food that should make up most of our diets. And we get saved and we're reading all these devotionals. We're reading all these Christian books. As Solomon says, of making many books, there's no end. That verse can probably describe describe um, new Christians, you know, more than anyone else. It's not to say that there's not a place for Christian books and devotionals, but they're like supplements. They should supplement our Bible reading. And what I mean by that is there, you're, you're going through your Christian life, and then there's a topic that you want to learn more about. Maybe you've become a parent, or maybe you've just gotten married, or maybe you're having an argument, or maybe you want to communicate better, or maybe you want to learn about prophecy. And so you purchase some Christian book that supplements your Bible reading, some Christian book on parenting or communication or prophecy that's going to help you grow in this area. That book is going to supplement your Bible reading. And really, that's what weightlifters do. When you do talk to successful weightlifters about what they do, they're using supplements as supplements. Or in other words, they're using supplements to supplement their diet and fill the holes that they can't fill through whole food. Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And so 
you'll meet Christians sometimes, and you'll say, what are you reading in God's Word? And I always cringe. You're just trying to make conversation. You're excited to hear what other people are reading and learning, and, and it's encouraging for us as Christians. They could, they could be sharing something that we already are very familiar with, some passage that we've studied out thoroughly or maybe preached on, and you're encouraged just seeing their enthusiasm talking about it. And so you ask, well, what are you reading? What are you studying in God's Word? And I always cringe when someone says, well, there's this devotional I'm reading, or well, there's this Christian book that I'm reading. And I think, okay, read your devotionals, read your Christian books, but read them as supplements to the whole food that you should be, that you need to, to, to thrive, that you should be living on. And with everything happening with the coronavirus, this brings us to another temptation that I think can pull us away from the whole food or the Word of God that we should be consuming. And before I share it, I want to make one qualification so that nobody hears this and then leaves and says, well, Pastor Scott said we should be uninformed. No, one of the worst things is uninformed Christians. There are a few things that make other Christians look really bad, and one of those things is uninformed Christians. Because when uninformed Christians share their opinions and they're glaringly wrong, then people project that Christian on all other Christians. And so suddenly, everyone thinks all Christians are ignorant, or all Christians are uninformed, or all Christians are foolish. So uninformed, uneducated Christians is terribly detrimental. That's definitely not what I'm saying. I'm all for trying, as difficult as it can be, to be educated and informed. I'm trying to catch the White House briefings each day. I've read lots of articles about the virus. I've been part of four webinars. I'll be part of another one this week, webinars specifically for pastors shepherding their congregations. One of the web webinars attending with Pastor Nathan shepherding our congregations through this season and figuring out the best way to do so. Webinar is just determining whether to have communion like we are. One, one webinar, one gentleman said, we're not, I, don't, I don't even want to tell you what the, I don't even want to tell you what he said because I didn't agree with it. Never mind. But anyway, just the different webinars where people are giving their opinions, but I'm trying to learn too, be informed, be educated about this new season for all of us. But there comes a point that we are reading and we are watching and we are listening to too much, where it can become like this obsession, and in the process, we are neglecting God's Word. And so, as your pastor, I just want to invite you to examine how much time you're spending on the virus versus how much time you're spending on God's Word, because you're being fed by both. There's no way, nothing, there's nothing that we bring in that doesn't influence us one way or the other. I mean, that's why in Philippians 4, Paul says, think on these things. And when you start putting everything through that filter, it's because Paul knew there's a lot then that can't come into your life because once that's the filter, I mean, how many shows or movies can you set your eyes on if Philippians 4 is the filter? Not much. And so you say, okay, well, what about these amoral things? like coronavirus updates. Well, the Bible doesn't forbid coronavirus updates, but it does forbid idolatry, and it does forbid addition, addiction and obsessiveness. It commands self-control. And so what I would say is, if you're, you've become addicted 
to the coronavirus and every new update and article and news piece about it, then you need to examine yourself. And I would say you need to pull back, or repent, and start putting yourself into God's Word and be fed by that and turn off or limit yourself regarding how many updates and how many news pieces, how many articles you're going to read and you're going to share and you're going to post about and you're going to comment on. The people that I see who are typically, you know, the most frazzled are the people whose every post is about the coronavirus. And that's, you kind of get through Facebook or through social media, this window into their lives, and you can tell their lives revolve around what's happening with the coronavirus. And you say, and so you look and you say, well, well, shouldn't it? I mean, that's what I'm, no, that's not what your life should revolve around. Your life should still revolve around worshiping God, which you can still do, just like before the coronavirus, being with your family, ministering to others. You can still minister. That's every single Sunday. I mean, we're so blessed after Pastor Nathan and Joe. They, they're too humble to receive the credit, but I think most people probably recognize much of this with outreach has originated with them. But every Sunday he comes in and he makes the same point. We're still ministering. We're still serving. We're still active. There's all these other ways that are still available to us to be reaching out to people and ministering to people and serving I mean, whether I'm honestly, I'm feeling zoomed out. You know, I don't really, not really interested in another. I could probably go the rest of my life and maybe not have another Zoom conference call. But right now, that's what God has afforded us as a way to minister to others, encourage others, and be ministered to and encouraged. So just consider whether the amount of coronavirus you're digesting is a healthy amount or not. All of us, myself included, perhaps are weary just thinking about all the overwhelming and untrustworthy information that's out there. So I want to read some verses that can encourage us to spend the time that we should in God's Word during this season. Look at verse 9. Ecclesiastes 12, 9. Solomon says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher is Solomon. And the many Proverbs that he wrote we have in our Bibles, or the many Proverbs mentioned in this verse we have in the book of Proverbs. Then verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And then here's the important part. Verse 11, notice this. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and they are like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. Now, verses, this is interesting. Verses 9 and 10 discuss the preacher, which is Solomon, and so he's actually talking about himself, and he talks about himself, although I suppose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very positively. It's like when you read in Deuteronomy, and Moses says that Moses was the humblest man to ever live, right? It's kind of funny. Maybe someone added that later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his, to the book of Deuteronomy. But anyway, right here, we've got Solomon saying that he's wise, He taught the people knowledge. He created many proverbs. He sought to find words of delight, and he wrote words of truth. So you would expect when he talks about the words of the wise that they came from him. But that's not what he says. He does something wonderful here. He deflects. Where did he say the words of the wise came from? From what? From one shepherd. From one shepherd. And who's that shepherd? In the Old Testament, the broader elevated view 
is God himself. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. At this point, you say, well, maybe it's David or some other king. But then it says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. We know David's not enthroned upon the cherubim shining forth, right? So we know this is referring to God as a shepherd. Then in the New Testament, because scripture is cumulative and progressive, and what I mean by that is that scripture or revelation builds over time, and it builds on previous revelations. So scripture is progressive and cumulative in that it provides more revelation over time, and that revelation builds on previous revelation. It's progressive and cumulative. And so you see the shepherd in the Old Testament as God. You zoom in, or there's greater revelation, or progressive or cumulative revelation in the New Testament that reveals that this shepherd is Jesus himself. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hebrews 13, 20, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, that's who I want to get words from. This is who I want wise words that come into my mind and my heart to be from the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And so, hear from him. Hear from him at least as much, but I would say more than you're hearing from any doctor or any scientist or any friend or any social or group on Facebook or social media. The greatest wisdom comes from Jesus. I mean, the reason that Solomon deflected, stopped talking about himself as the preacher and started talking about Jesus is because, well, take your mind to the New Testament. As wise as Solomon was, you know, the Queen of Sheba comes from the far ends of the world to hear the words of Solomon but then in the Gospels, Jesus says, hey, Solomon was wise, but now, Matthew 12, 42, someone greater than Solomon or someone wiser than Solomon is here, referring to himself. We want to get our wise words from the true and greater Solomon or the greater than Solomon. I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth mentioning in it. In verse 11, the words of the wise given by the shepherd refer to the word of God because what Jesus, the shepherd taught, is the word of God. And if you briefly look at verse 11, the shepherd's wise words, or the word of God, are fittingly compared with two shepherd's tools, goads and nails firmly fixed. And this brings us to lesson two. God's word is like a part one goad that directs. Lesson two, God's word is like a part one goad that directs. Goads were long sticks that were sharpened on the end to a point, and shepherds used to use them to poke animals and move them in the right direction. Can you see why the word of God would be compared with a goad? Because what does God's word do? It pokes us and it moves us in the right direction. Goads were used to alert animals, to wake them up. And what does God's word do? If we're sensitive to it, if we're reading it like we should be, it alerts us and it, spiritually speaking, wakes us up. Finally, goads, they sting. As soon as I say it, you're like, well, I bet it hurt animals. Yeah, goads hurt animals. They stung. And God's word, fittingly, 
is compared with a goad because it stings us. It hurts at times, but in a very wonderful, convicting way. The sting of God's Word, I mean, many ways I could discuss how it stings, but let's just consider how it stings regarding trials or what it teaches about trials. Just think of what you would expect if you hadn't read the Bible before, expected to say about trials. We want to read that God is going to prevent trials, but God's Word says that we need to expect trials. They're part of this life. We want to read that God is going to make trials easier for us. But instead, God says, my grace is going to be sufficient for you to endure them, which means he's not easing them. He's not lightening them for us. Instead, he says, my grace will be sufficient for you to handle the trials just as they are. We want to read that God is going to let us pout and feel sorry for ourselves when we're going through trials. Instead, we're told to count them as what? Count them as joy. And so here's the point I want you to see. Man's words, they're untrustworthy. You don't know whether they're accurate. You don't know that the direction that they're goading or pointing you in is correct, but God's word is a goad that is trustworthy. Even though it hurts sometimes, it is always going to be pointing us in the right direction. And when it stings us, it is stinging us for our good. Second, in verse 11, it says the wise words are compared with, notice this, nails firmly fixed. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. God's word is like a part two stake that protects. A stake that protects. It says nails, but it's a shepherd's tool. It's referring to stakes that shepherds would put in the ground to secure animals who might wander off into either dangerous territory or just wander off from the flock and get themselves in trouble. Now, you can probably guess that most animals would not like being secured to a stake like this, but it was what? It was for their own good. It protected them, just like we might not enjoy all of the boundaries that God's Word puts on us, but it's protecting us from wandering off into dangerous territory. There's a a saying I like, it's not bad because it's a sin, or it's a sin because it's bad. Let me sound more, that sound a little confusing. It's not bad because it's a sin, it's a sin because it's bad. In other words, God isn't up in heaven just randomly, arbitrarily saying, "Um, this isn't bad, but I'll call it a sin. He says it's a sin because it is bad. He's not up there trying to figure out how to make us miserable and suck the joy out of our lives, and so he'll say that this wonderful, harmless thing is a sin when it's not. He says it's a sin to protect us. He's, he's trying to keep us secured or tied up to this stake so that we wouldn't wander off and we wouldn't get ourselves in any danger. The nails were going to keep these animals in place. They were going to be fixed. They were going to be secure if they were tied to this stake. And if we are tied to God's word, then that is what it is going to do for us. It is going to give us that safe and secure foundation. And I guarantee you are not going to get that from man's words. You are not going to get that from anything you can watch on YouTube or Facebook unless they happen to be giving you the word of God. Notice it says the nails are firmly fixed. 
And what does that communicate? How unmovable they are, how unchangeable. Just, and that's why God's word is compared with these stakes. Firmly fixed, Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 1 Peter 1, 24. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Listen to what the shepherd, Jesus, said about his words. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I mean, that's pretty firmly fixed, isn't it? You got everything passing away except for the wise words of the shepherd. Unlike man's word, which changes God's word, it's firm and it's unchanging. If you go anywhere else, you're going to get tossed around. If you're going to social media, you're going to YouTube, whatever you're turning into, I guarantee you're not going to find security there. There's going to be an amount of truth, but figuring out what's trustworthy and what isn't is, just like Solomon says, very wearisome. And so my hope for you is that you're anchored in God's word and not any of man's words regarding what you're reading, listening to, or watching. We're grounded in Christ if we're abiding in him and his words. Let me conclude with these verses, Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie, so we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, a hope that enters into the inner place, the most holy place past the curtain or the veil, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So our hope is not in the next blog post or not in the next book or not in the next article. Our hope is in Jesus who has entered the most holy place on our behalf, and that hope can serve as an anchor for us. If you want to avoid being weary, remember this. Solomon said the reading of many books wearies us, but reading God's word strengthens us. Father, we thank you so much for that truth, the anchor that we have in your son and his teachings, the shepherd of our souls and the wise words that come from him. And help us during this time to be tuning in to what you want to say to us through the scriptures everything around us, so much shifting, so much changing, so much untrustworthy information, even people that mean well. I don't, I don't mean to sound too critical of, the, of those out there who are trying to help others, but our hope has to be in Christ, Lord, and we pray that we would be looking there and that you would be convicting us if we are tuning in to too many other outlets or sources too often, that instead we would have our, our hope secure in your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.